Our New Testament passage today comes from the book of Romans, and I will get to that in a few moments. But I wanted to introduce it by a conversation a little bit about literature and poetry and the worth that we find in these endeavors. I was an English major in college, and so I have heard all the bad English major jokes. Jokes like, would you like fries with that major? And what is the difference between a park bench and an English major? A park bench can support a family. <laughs> Studying literature and languages might not always seem like a profitable enterprise, like something worth spending your life on. We've all seen how funding for the liberal arts becomes a political football in different eras. And I laugh at the jokes about being an English major as much as the next person. However, when we dedicate our lives and dedicate ourselves to studying things like ancient words, something which we do when we hear scripture each week, I would venture to say that we are studying something which speaks deeply to who and what we are as human beings. When we share the writings and the dreams and the visions of people across the centuries, even millennia, I would say that we are sharing something about hope, something that helps us to look beyond our current situation, beyond our current selves, and look at a broader vision, a vision of hope for the world. A few weeks ago, I came across an article by Irina Dum Dumitrescu. Irina had studied how prisoners survived the brutal labor and re-education camps in communist Russia of the late 1940s and 1950s. In these camps, artists and intellectuals, lawyers, politicians, and priests were rounded up and put through forceful psychological and physical measures, tortures, that were designed to re-educate these people, to make them more open to the government's messages. Irina writes that she read a dozen Romanian prison memoirs, all of them not even published until after the 1989 revolution. And each memoir testified to the power of the liberal arts, especially literature and foreign languages. It was a power which helped these individuals maintain sanity and a sense of self in conditions designed to destroy them. Irina writes about her surprise of how common it was for prisoners to teach each other languages at these camps. One historian learned Hungarian from a fellow prisoner and then taught it to another, and meanwhile he practiced his own English and French and German. Many prisoners survived by recalling poetry they had learned in school or by writing their own. Inmates used Morse or other tapping codes to compose poems, often finishing each other's lines. Prisoners formed study groups, recalling the plots of novels and teaching each other history from memory. Forced into this program of re-education, these artists and intellectuals, these lawyers and priests, created their own universities instead. In the end, the author, Irina, concludes that when politicians and governments attack the arts and humanities as worthless, what this attack reveals is how important the arts actually are, 
how vital their message is to us as human beings, and therefore how threatening it is for oppressive regimes. When in prison, words and letters and the way they connect individuals can convey some deep message that transcends the bars and the boundaries which bind people. And in the end, what is being shared, even the most brutal of situations, I would say, is this message of hope. Hope that something else is out there. Something besides the current situation is giving meaning and life. Something is coming towards us, and even though we are in prison now, even though we might feel bruised and beaten now, we can lift our eyes up and search the horizon for a different day to dawn. We have been choosing different words of the week for many months now, and this week's word, as you know, is hope. And this message that we hear from Irina about the Romanian prisoners is a similar message to the one that pa Paul wrote from his prison cell. He was a prisoner of the government, jailed for disturbing the peace and upsetting the authorities, and we have his writings collected in the letter to the Romans. Paul is reaching out to a small group of early Christians, and he's trying to give them a vision of something beyond the current isolation and frustration and persecution they were experiencing. In the words we're about to read, Paul is writing to redirect their vision towards a new horizon, towards the future, towards a different day that is dawning. And so let us listen to his words in Romans, chapter 13, verse 10 through 14. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably, as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today is also the first Sunday of Advent, and we, as we have mentioned, and Advent is the four-week season of preparation for Christmas. There are different texts chosen for each week in the, uh, in the liturgical season of Advent. And this week, the texts were this Isaiah and Romans passage. We might be surprised to hear these texts because there's nothing in here about Emmanuel or Messiah, nothing about John the Baptist or Mary. We aren't getting any whispers of angels or shepherds or babies arriving in our midst. Some of us have babies on the mind, but they are not in the text. We are not yet here, there in the story of Scripture. The Scriptures are trying to teach us something more elemental, more basic. These Scriptures are not ready to tell the story of Christ's birth yet because we are not ready to hear that story yet. First, we need to be told to wake up. 
Christ's birth is coming, yes, but Isaiah and Paul are just trying to shake us awake and look up and look around. Before we can understand the story of Christmas, before we can see what Christ is promising to us, before we can even know what we are looking for over the next couple weeks, we have to wake up and look up. We have to turn on that porch light and light that candle. We have to get our eyes open and realize the darkness we have been staring at just might have been the back of our own eyelids. Before we are ready for Christ's coming, we have to admit that we need him. Before we welcome a world where God is among us, we must admit that we do need God here. We must wake up and confess that this world is not how it ought to be. Before we are ready to, as Isaiah instructed, beat our spears into pruning hooks, we have to admit that we've been carrying those spears around in the first place. We must confess that our own vision for the world isn't enough. We must wake up and admit that we ache and yearn and cry out for a world where God's vision of love and justice reigns. Before we are ready for Christ to break in and reveal to us the depth of God's love and grace, we must wake up and admit how much we need this love, how much we need this love to shatter the clouds of bigotry and prejudice, how much we need this grace to puncture our own sense of self-righteousness and selfishness and greed. We must admit how much we need to hope for something that is beyond the work of our own hands. Indeed, this is what hope does. Hope tells us to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond our current situation for meaning and for purpose. Hope, hoping in something means admitting that we still don't have it yet, that we still have to wake up and look up and start searching the horizon for the promises we hear about in these scriptures. Hope means waking up and looking and searching for a dawn that will rise over a city like the redeemed Jerusalem, which we heard about, where nations gather together and God arbitrates among them and they beat swords into plowshares. It means looking on the horizon for a world that Paul describes where we can live in the light without shame or fear. Hope is about waking up and choosing to believe that God isn't done with us yet. Even if we are in exile, even if we are in prison, even if we are even caught in the whirlpool of our own minds of self-criticism and guilt and doubt, God isn't done with us yet. God isn't done with the world. Hope is about looking up and choosing to believe that what God is saying about love and justice and grace and peace really does matter to us here and now. And here's the hard part to grasp for us, especially us good Presbyterians. It isn't all up to us. What happens often when we wake up and we look up and we get a glimpse of that beautiful, vast horizon of God's vision for the world is that we get moved and excited by it. 
and we find ourselves soaring on wings of hope and joy that this is possible. And then we start to look around and we see how much work there is to do before we can reach that vision for the world. And we see how distant that horizon actually is. And we start to make calculations about how long it will take to get there. And then we get tired and then our feet start to preemptively ache and we feel our minds already grow weary and we decide that, well, if we cannot reach that beautiful vision as we hear about it, as we imagine it, if we cannot reach it on our own, then we might as well not even start walking towards it. We might as well go back to sleep. Indeed, so often when hope shakes us awake and urges us to look at God's vision for the world, it is our own egos that can get in the way they can shout with excitement, yes, I like this idea. I too can be God. And then we push ourselves until we burn out and spin out and end up broken at the side of the road. Or our egos say, well, I'll never be God. There's no use even trying. And so we turn over and close our eyes shut and decide instead to worry about what our coworker really meant by that comment or if we really look slender and fit enough in our Christmas photo. Hearing Isaiah's words offered a few thousand years ago to a people in exile might leave us wondering, why aren't we there yet? Hearing Paul's words from a prison cell might have us thinking, come on, where is that dawn that Paul describes? When hope shakes us awake, and tells us to look up at God's horizon, the view can be challenging and daunting. We must remind ourselves that choosing to hope in God does not mean that we are God. These are two very different things. When hope shakes us awake and tells us to look up, it does not mean that we are immediately out of exile, out of prison, out of the darkness it means that there is more going on than we can see right away. It means that God is at work in ways that we might not yet understand. And so we must keep waking up and rubbing our, the sleep out of our eyes. We must keep looking up and looking around and trying to find the next person that we can help, the next person that we can love, the next person that we can care for and work with against forces of oppression and hate and shame. It is not our job to drag people kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. It is not our job to make that entire world, entire horizon come to pass right away. But it is our job to read the scriptures, to gather together, and to ask each other, what do you hope for? What do I hope for? What is God hoping to do with you and me? And how can we work towards this hope together? It is our job to wake up and look up and turn to the person next to us and point to that horizon and say, do you see what I see? How do we start heading there together? This week I read an article online by the Quaker activist Parker Palmer. He titled the essay, Start Close In, which is the name of a poem by David White. 
The poem begins like this. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing close in, the step you don't want to take. Parker Palmer, Palmer draws comfort from these words, writing, this poem reminds me when I try to start big, it's probably because I'm seeking an excuse to get out of doing anything. The big stuff, after all, is beyond my reach, at least for the moment. But if I start close in, I'll find things that I can do right now, things that are a lot more productive than just pumping up my blood pressure. Palmer goes on to describe how he's recently turned to an unlikely engine of, social, of spiritual renewal, which is Google. He says, I've been spending time on Google searching phrases like immigrant services, bullying prevention, minority mentoring programs, Hispanic centers, Muslim or Islamic centers, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ Lives Matter, allies and support, reproductive rights, and men against violence to women, and I've preceded all these by the name of the city where I live. I now have a lot of email addresses and phone numbers, and I've begun sending messages asking, in addition to donating, how can I be of personal help? Palmer does admit, I won't be able to pursue every possibility that comes my way, but I'm sure that I'll find a few things that call to me, things that fit the limits of my life while stretching me in ways that will bring me to deeper understanding. And eventually, those small steps will take me back to working on larger changes which we need so badly for our democracy to thrive. But first, we do have to start close in. Friends, hope is not easy. Hope is something we sometimes want to move past the need for. Sometimes we want to jump to the part where Christ appears and makes all things new. We want to skip this Advent preparation part of our lives and just get on with being lulled to sleep by a good Christmas story of shepherds and angels. But hope is real and it is powerful. And it is trying to shake us awake and get us to look up at the horizon where God's vision for the world appears, where a vision of justice and peace and love and grace matters, matters for what we are doing right here and right now. Hope is at work, whether in the exiled people of Isaiah or in the prison cells of Rome or Romania. Hope is at work even if we are in an exile or prison of our own making. In all these spaces, hope refuses to take no for an answer. Hope asks us to wake up, to look up, to see God's vision, and then to start in close. Start taking the next step, the one we don't want to take. Whomever we are, wherever we are going, Hope asks us to take the next step of loving and working and teaching and surviving, of protecting and defending, of witnessing and testifying. Friends, it is not our job to change the whole world, but it is our job to first admit that this world needs to change and that we need to change 
that something needs to be done differently. And then we have to start in close and get to work and put one foot in front of the other and welcome the next person we see because one day soon, the next person we meet on that road towards that distant, beautiful horizon of God's vision, the next person we meet on the road will be Christ himself. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Wake us up. Teach us to look for you and to commit our lives to following you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.